few weeks ago, the elders and I met, and as we do monthly, and at that occasion, I asked a question, as I do periodically, and that is, what topics do you suggest that I preach on that perhaps I have not preached on recently? Or is there a topic that I am excluding or forgetting that I ought to be dealing with? One of the topics that was mentioned was that of Christian evidences, that of dealing with the defense of the Christian faith. And so after planning the lessons for this year, for the next several Sundays, I want to address some subjects on Sunday night that relate to the topic of Christian evidences. I've entitled this series of lessons, Battle for Belief. And I think that accurately represents what we're going to try to do. And that is we're going to attempt to do what Paul discussed with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I want to go through that passage and then offer a few words of introduction. And then we'll study the lesson that we have prepared for tonight. If you'll notice carefully as Paul is opening chapter 10... And he gets down to verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We live in this physical world. We are a part of a physical life. However, we do not war the same way that this physical world does. Those who are either being the aggressor or those who are being in the defensive role generally will use whatever weapons of warfare are current with our society. Years ago, they may have used bows and arrows. They may have used knives or javelins. They may have used a number of other things, but in our society today, it's generally guns and bombs. And there are many people who are either captured or killed as a part of modern warfare. But Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not fleshly, but mighty in God. Don't underestimate when you start thinking about the battle that we are fighting and the weapons that you and I use as if somehow they are weak and ineffective because they are not. They are mighty in God. He said, for the pulling down of strongholds. A stronghold is a defensive place. It is where those who are trying to defend their anti-God, anti-religious, anti-faith, you and I have to realize that what we're using is to tear those strongholds down. And so he says in verse 5, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We have to realize that what we're dealing with is a verbal, it is a thought, it is a mental battle. In fact, he goes on to say, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It is a mind battle, if you will. 
We're battling for the minds of men. Now let me set, if you will, the groundwork of what I would like to lay before you. When we look at our society today, we're living in a much more pagan, much more secular society than we did just a few years ago. For instance, those of you who are my age and older can remember when you went to public school, the first thing that you did in the morning was to have a Bible reading, a prayer, and then the Pledge of Allegiance. At least that's what I grew up with. And I would imagine from talking with many of you, that's what you grew up with today. Today, what we are faced with is something entirely different. We're faced with mothers and sometimes fathers aborting their children. We're faced with families who now abuse their children physically, emotionally, verbally, and otherwise. We have schools where people go in with guns and they slaughter kindergarten age children. We live in a society that's become violent that has no respect for their fellow man. Theft, mistreatment of other people is at an all-time high. I know that many of you, like me, wonder how can we change society back toward a more moral, a more humane society than we live in today. Some people think that it will be accomplished through politics. Let me point out to you, that will not happen. We'll not be able to elect a person who is somehow going to solve and be a panacea for all of righting all the wrongs. It's going to involve the conversion of everyday people. It's only when you begin to reach to the hearts and the minds of everyone that we're going to be able to affect a real change in our society. So how are we going to do that? We're going to have to teach, we're going to have to persuade, and we're going to have to battle, if you will, for belief. We're going to have to change what our society thinks. Now I could spout out for you a number of statistics about what people used to think about what they believed and who they believed in. But tonight, as a way of introduction for this series, I'd like to look at three things. Number one is some techniques for teaching. And really it's not so much techniques as it is recognition of the way we have to approach things. Number two, I would like for us to talk about some topics for concern, some things that you and I have to deal with and approach, if you want to call it. It's the weapons of our warfare. And then number three, the truth will prevail. Let's begin with this idea of techniques for teaching. We always have to begin where a person is at in their understanding. And the truth is, whether you're looking at the time in which Jesus walked this earth, the time in which you appeared in this world, or you look at today, there have always been people who have been, at some point in their life, ignorant. Now, I know when you use the term ignorant, some people think that's a, always a derogatory term, and it's not always derogatory. It simply means that a person does not know. 
If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, I want to begin with verse 17 and read through verse 19. As Paul looks at the city of Ephesus, as he observes the way they thought their, I guess you'd say their outlook, their mindset. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from life in God or life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to work or over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, these people, this is the way the Gentiles walk. The word Gentiles is from the word ethnos, which means the ethnic group of people. We're talking about the world. This is the way the nations think. Let me ask you today, is that not the way the nations think today? Is it not because of the ignorance that's in this world that this is the way people live? That they, because of the ignorance of their minds and the hardness of their heart, they've given themselves over to lewdness. Turn on your television set and you will be disgusted with what you and I are being fed as a daily diet being fed into our minds. And we're fighting a battle, folks, a real battle, because we're dealing with people of ignorance. When you go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning with verse 20, going through verse 23, and the people in Athens say about Paul's preaching, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Isn't that really like society today? You're, you know, when we get up and we preach what God says, that's strange things. In fact, he says, Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear some new things. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, therefore whom you worship without knowing. The King James says ignorantly. It comes from a word which means not knowing. Agneo, from which we get our word agnostic. He says, Him I proclaim unto you. We have to realize that people, some people just don't know who God is. They have no conception of Him. And you have to begin where people are. We realize that even religious people who honor the God of the Bible, many of them are ignorant as well. Was any different in the first century? Romans 10, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. 
Yes, even religious people can be ignorant. And let me give you a very eye-opening statement. Their ignorance does not preclude their guilt. The fact that they do not know God and do not know the truth does not mean that somehow they get off because of that. Our young people studied Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Truly the times of this ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You see, God looks and he says, this ignorance that exists in society is not right. So, when you start talking about techniques of teaching people, you have to start where they are. And some people are starting at the very beginning. I mean, they know nothing. They accept nothing. For instance, there are some people who do not recognize the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures as being inspired of God because they don't even accept God, at least not the God of the Bible. They may be idolaters, that is, they worship some other God, or they may be atheists, they don't worship any God. And we have a lot of atheists in this world right now, a lot of atheists in our country. And I'm sad that a lot of our young people are going to go to colleges and universities and be subjected to the teachings of some of these who will mock them and belittle them because of their faith. Well, if I understand that some of them will not accept the Bible, then if I take my Bible and I put it in front of them and I say, but let me tell you what God says, they say, I don't care what your God says. You see, you have no frame of reference from which to discuss with them. Well, if I want to be effective in trying to battle for the minds of men and I have a Bible and they won't listen to that Bible, where do I start? Well, thankfully, those of us who believe the Bible already have some indication. I'm just going to refer you to two passages. If you will turn with me now to Acts chapter 14, I want to begin with verse 11, Acts chapter 14 and verse 11. Paul is in Lystra. There's a man who's unable to walk. Paul heals him. When that takes place, you will see the response in verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the uh, Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of the city brought oxen and garlands and uh, to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Now listen carefully. We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to 
the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their own ways, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. What did I learn from Luke's record there? I learned that when you go in among people who worship gods like Zeus and Hermes, you can't out open your Bible and say to them, well, let me show you here what it says in Acts chapter 2. Because they don't accept Acts chapter 2. So how did Paul approach them? He said, men, we're of the like nature as you. You want to discuss God's word with people? Get on their level. Let you have a common denominator with them. Let them see that you are like them. They are like you. Number two, you have to move from that to pointing out that God had a witness. And his witness was the things that are made. And that's the way Paul approaches. He begins with dealing with them where they are. Now, I have to move on because I'm going to deal with some of this later. If you'll turn with me now to Acts 17. We're going to pick up where we left off a few moments ago at verse 24. Acts 17 and verse 24. Now, Paul is dealing with these men on the Areopagus, these intelligent men who are idolaters. That is, they do not worship the God of the Bible. They do have an altar to the unknown God, and they don't know anything about him. That's, again, agnosto. We don't know who this God is. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things and has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations or their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might Grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our very being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore we ought not to think, or since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. You notice earlier he talked about the nature of man when he talked with the people at Lystra. Now he talks about the nature of God. What kind of being it would be who would be the one worthy of worship. You see, you, you have to get where people are. And everyone has some, as you would say in math, the lowest common denominator. There's always a point in which you can start with someone. I point out that people recognize generally the things that they can see, hear, smell, taste, or touch. The five senses. 
For instance, people have learned that fire is hot. Ice is cold. They're able to reason like that. For instance, Proverbs 6 and verse 27 says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I don't care what religious stripe you are from or no religion whatsoever. Men have known from the fact that fire is hot that if you take hot coals and you put them right here, you're going to burn your clothes. You can talk to people about cause and effect. For instance, if I'm driving by and I see a home burning, I know that there's something that caused that fire. It didn't just spontaneously happen. may have been faulty wiring. may have been by arson. The person on the house may have decided to burn it themselves. There could be any number of causes... But we know there's a cause. We begin with people with the principle of Hebrews 3 and verse 4. Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God, or he who made all things is God. One of the greatest techniques and tools that you and I have is the way we approach people. You know, people can look at our lives and observe whether or not, number one, we are consistent with what we say we believe. Number two, whether or not we are happy with the lifestyle that we have chosen. And then those who are able to perceive goodness in our lives will want to ask, how is it that you have such joy in your life? How is it that you have such as we discussed last week and a little bit this morning, the peace that surpasses all understanding from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. You see, the truth is, in 1 Peter 3:15, he says, But sanctify in your heart Christ Jesus as Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, to give a defense to everyone that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. We've got to be ready to tell people why we believe what we believe. Now, I could go into some more details, but I realize I haven't even finished my first point yet, so I'm going to skip about probably two or three points here. And I want to go to my second major point, and that is topics of concern. As we will approach this subject over the next few weeks, where are we going? What's the road map? Well, I think it's essential that we see that there has to be a logical progression. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10, and let's look at verse 14 for just a minute. I think you'll see that there is a, a step here, like you're walking up a set of steps. And Paul is going to reverse them as if a person's going backwards down them. And he asks, when he talks about whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he said, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, let's step back. Before a person can believe, somebody had to tell them something so they could believe it. But before someone could tell them that, you had to have somebody who could preach it. 
And he's going to go on in verse 15, and how shall they preach except they are sent? You have a logical progression. When you start talking about approaching people, the very first thing that you have to deal with is, do they believe in a God at all? I've met people who would say, I don't believe in any kind of God. I don't believe in the God of Islam. I don't believe in the God of the Buddhist. I don't believe in the Christian God either, is what they would say. So what do you have to do? You have to begin with what's called the classical arguments for God. The argument from cause, the argument from design, and the moral argument. Lord willing, that's sort of where we will start next week. In order to address this, you have to address the opposition to that. And that is the theory of evolution. Not even a good theory at that. You have to deal with all of its errors. You have to point out that it's inadequate to explain the existence of man. Does the Bible address some of this? Most certainly it does. For instance, Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And there is no one who does good. In the New Testament as well. Romans 1 and verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. I can look at the created world and see God there. The second thing that one has to address is the Bible. You have to point out, if there is a God, has he revealed himself? You know, deism, which was very popular a couple hundred years ago, they believed that there was a God who created this world, he started it, and then somehow he just left it to go on its own. As if he had no other concern after he created it. But if God has revealed himself through a book, what would we expect that book? What does it mean to say the Bible is inspired of God? You have to deal with alleged contradictions. These places in the Bible where they would say, okay, it says this here and this over here, and that's got to be a contradiction. And if that's what the Bible says, then it's not a book from God. You have to deal with how we got our Bibles. You know, if you listen to Mr. Brown's Da Vinci Code or to Professor Bart Ehrman over in North Carolina, you would think that the Bible was somehow just, these people got these little manuscripts, like, well, I like this one here. Let's put this in the Bible. Oh, no, no, I don't like that. Let's put something else in there. You've got to deal with that. Because we have to, to follow 2 Corinthians 10, cast down every stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The third step, first is the existence of God. Second of all is the inspiration of the Bible. The third step is the deity of Christ. What kind of claims did Jesus make? Did he claim to be the Son of God? What about the prophecies of him from the Old Testament? Did he fulfill each of those prophecies? Are there any of those prophecies that Jesus didn't fulfill? What about the miracles that he performed? 
Were they merely magic shows? You know, Herod wanted to be amazed when Jesus was brought to him prior to being crucified by the direction of Pontius Pilate. He wanted to see Jesus work some sort of show. The fourth step along the way is the identity of the church. The modern misconceptions of the nature of God has caused people to have all kinds of weird views of God. I've got to mention this past Thursday there was a young, man, a couple of young men who decided they wanted to drive out through the grassy area. They found out what happens when you have ground that is soft with rain. They found out that you can't go very far and got stuck. Brother Leonard happened to come along about the same time that the police came along. And What I thought was funny was this young man spouting theology, talking about forgiveness. You know, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. He'll send you to hell if you don't forgive. All the while, while he's saying, don't have them to pull my truck. You see, it's amazing how many ideas people come up with about God who don't know the Bible. It's amazing how many people have a view about what the church should be or ought to be who do not even consult what God's Word says. You know, the Bible has a pattern within it. Hebrews 8 and verse 5, speaking to Moses and the Hebrew writers making the point, this is for you in the New Testament era as well. He said, See that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mount. In other words, when it comes to making that tabernacle, Moses, you've got to make it just like that pattern I showed you. Just like Noah, you've got to build that ark. It's got to be out of gopher wood. It has to be this long, this wide. The church cannot be just the way I want it to be. It's got to be as revealed by God. Finally, third major point, the truth will prevail. Regardless of whether we are effective or not, and you and I are not commanded to produce results, we're commanded to preach the gospel. Paul said, I planted a palace of water, but God gave the increase. I cannot make people believe. I can be able to present the truth to them, and then it becomes their choice whether to accept it or to reject it. But Romans 3 and verse 4, Paul says, Let God be true and every man a liar. I can say whatever I want to say. If it's error, it'll be a lie. If it's truth, it's because God has produced it. Isaiah 55 and verse 11, So my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing in which I send it. The truth is, is that when God's word goes out, there will be people who will accept it. There will be people who will listen. And there will be people who will obey the gospel. This past week I was reading an article in a magazine called Bible and Spade. And the author of this article made the point that some people say, God doesn't need defending. God is God and he'll still be God. And he doesn't need you and I to defend him. And the truth is, he doesn't need me to defend him, but he's commanded me to. And that's the difference. 
In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, for since the, in its wisdom the world, through its wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's the way God intended that it be done. That's the reason why you have the Great Commission. In Mark 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Whether we realize it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are soldiers in the Lord's army. And I appreciate the songs that Brother Stanley chose tonight as they highlighted that great battle that you and I face. We must realize that it is our task to capture the hearts and the minds of the people of this world. Tonight, if you're here, perhaps many of you have heard lessons in the past that have been evangelistic. You know that it takes faith in God, repentance of sins, confession of your faith, and being baptized to be a Christian. We want to urge you to respond to the Lord's call to be obedient to His will. And if you are a Christian in need of prayers, we're brothers and sisters here. We serve an almighty God, a great merciful Father, and we'll pray together if you wish for us to do so. If you need to respond, would you come tonight as we stand and sing?